Welcome to the Analytics Power Hour. Analytics topics covered conversationally and sometimes with explicit language. Oh, hello there. Welcome to the Analytics Power Hour. This is episode 239. Thanks for taking a break from banging out some Python as you deploy a Mixtral LLM you just pulled down from Hugging Face to give this episode a listen. My name is Tim Wilson, and I am sufficiently aware of my lack of technical prowess to know that those languages and platforms I just referenced may have been smashed together in a way that is total nonsense. But that's why it's great that I'm joined by a couple of co-hosts who will tell me as much. Val Kroll, you're an optimization director at Further. Am I pulling you away from any deeply technical work to do this recording? (laughs) Uh, Not as technical as you just described, I'll tell you that. (laughs) That's like I, I was making it up. You might have been doing real work, though. But we're also joined by Mo Kiss, marketing data lead at Canva. Mo, you've now been a uh, management for a while. So, like, do you even do you even write any SQL at work oh, these days? No, and every time I do, I just feel really like rusty around the edges. It is <laughs> definitely a skill that's fading. The trappings of management. Yep. All right. Well, I've been kind of clunkily pointing towards the the topic for this episode already, but really it just it seems like the pace of technological technological change, it's so fast I can't even say the word. But the change in the world of data and analytics is accelerating at kind of just a crazy rate. And yet there are a lot of us with full-time data or analytics jobs who were drawn to the space sometime back and we love it. But now we have no small amount of trepidation that there's a whole world of technical skills that we need to develop to actually stay in the space. And that's what we're going to talk about. And, you know, the three of us each have our own kind of journeys and kind of how we got from where we were to where we are now. But we wanted to get a guest who really embraced that transition from a non-technical background all the way to the co-founding of a very technically oriented startup. Kirsten Lum started her career by getting a degree in English literature and then going to work at a grocery store in a position that was pretty far away from data science, as you might imagine. From there, she went on to spend at a couple of different roles, but ultimately she spent like nine years going from Expedia and then to Amazon and is now the CTO of Storytellers.ai, which is a company focused on bringing the practical application of data science to mid to large sized organizations in a wide range of industries, including nonprofits, which I think is actually really cool. So welcome to the show, Kirsten. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. Awesome. So we don't Usually, we don't often, it's not a normal thing for us to start out by asking a guest to give us kind of the, the rundown on their their personal career journey, but given the topic of the show and given that yours, as I kind of set it up, sort of definitely fits with this topic, could we maybe start with you giving that kind of, kind of the quick rundown on how you actually made that series of transitions from English literature to data science? Yeah, absolutely. I love telling this story because it seems so, um, what's the right word? Unlikely. Like, it's an unlikely story. It feels like when I was younger, like as a kid, I would have been absolutely appalled if you had told me that the job that I would do, I describe myself as a scientist. Like, that would have been the worst fate I could imagine as a child because I was 
all in on like arts. I was like, I would drawing and writing and reading and I did a lot of theater. I was in band. Like that was my life was very much like the left brained as we used to call it creative pursuits. But it turned out, you know, you can't, I came from a really small place. I actually grew up in sort of farm country in the U.S., And there's not many opportunities to like do much, even as a creative out there in rural areas. So I eventually ended up going to college and, you know, through many twists and turns, ended up with an English degree with my aim of being a librarian. Like that was my dream was to be a librarian, which, yeah, by the way, is a master's degree. You have to have a master's degree to be a librarian. So I was like, okay, get my bachelor's in English. I'm going to go get my master's to be a librarian. But like at that moment, as you kind of pointed out, like many people at that stage in life, I was struggling so hard to just make ends meet in one of these places in the world that's so high cost of living. So I was doing whatever I could to sort of get out of this, like, I'm negative $30 in my bank account at the end of every single month. So at the time, I was working in a grocery store. And in Seattle, of course, we have very little daylight. So I would walk to work in the dark, work in a freezer, by the way. My role, I had to be in a walk-in freezer to cut the fruit that you see on the wall in Whole Foods. And then walk home in the dark. And I was just like, I can't do this. I can't do this for, like, another day. And it turned out my friend had just started a startup doing marketing. And, like, that's one of the things that English majors kind of do with their degrees. They end up going into marketing. So despite having no reason to be hired at this place, like, terrible resume and no experience, (laughs) someone took a shot on me. And I got a job doing marketing there. But what it turns out is I think a lot of you, like, experience based on your your, um, backgrounds is, like, once you start doing marketing, the step to doing data science is very small. Because once you figure out, here's how I know if I'm a good marketer is by going and getting the data about what the outcomes were and trying things and seeing what works. And that's what data science, like, you know, is all about. So that was where I got my first feeling of like, I get this data stuff and it's really interesting and fascinating. And then from there, you know, after one of my favorite parts of the story is that the founder of that startup ended up, we end, he's my husband now. So when we started oh, wow. dating, uh, <laughs> I actually, I was like, okay, I need to leave the startup. So, you know, he, he and I started dating and that was when I, yeah, exactly. There's, there's a whole thing to unpack there too, by the way, that doesn't you know, fit into this. <laughs> like length of description but that was where I ended up at Expedia and in a in a data analyst role and one of the coolest things about that time was seeing how powerful picking up these technical skills like Python was in actually changing the way that the company operated like a single person could change one part of this organization and really see it grow just by you know putting in that work to learn those skills so and that for that is where the history starts of all the way down to to becoming a CTO of an AI company at this point. So yeah, that's that's uh, that's the unlikely tale. <laughs> I really love that point though, which I probably don't reflect often enough on that, you know, one data analyst or data scientist sitting in a company can do work that can like fundamentally change the direction of the company. Like that is such a powerful thing. I love that you called that out. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the fact that we're called on to create the narratives that form people's mindset around what they should do next and Mm. telling people how we're doing like we're the you know the speedometer and the you know oil change light and all of that we're that for the company as they're trying to drive and so you know doing that well really does shape that that point of view but is that i mean the on the marketing front i feel like i i sort of came in through a 
a technical writing and then wound up in marketing. But, you know, that first time I got access to web trends or SPSS and thought, Oh, I have the data and now I have the data and it's telling me something. I feel like that's the entry point for a lot of, for, for some non-trivial number of people. But then they, they're like, so maybe I get good at Excel. Maybe I'm become a real jockey with Tableau or with Adobe analytics, which that feels like that's like, there's a, there's a ceiling to that. Cause one, you're, may be prone to misinterpret the data because maybe you're not understanding incrementality or causality or something like that. But then there's also limited ability to drive efficiency with a Python or R or SQL. So like that feels like where some people say, Oh, I'm an analyst. And all of a sudden people are talking about Python or SQL or R and saying, yeah, do I have to do that? Or, you know, can I just live in, in Tableau and let somebody else do the work? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a great question. And that, I think you're totally right there. People kind of stratify, like you've got the, you know, the marketing folks that actually would love to never touch a spreadsheet. And then you've got the marketing folks that have got one foot in each camp. They're like, mm. you, they're asking you for extracts all the time. And like, they're, you know, trying to piece their things together. And then there's the ones that have put both feet in and they're, you know, to your point, they've got access to the, you know, DB or whatever, and they're pulling their own stuff. And then there's the folks that go like this next layer deeper, which almost starts to touch software engineering. Like mm. you start thinking about that was actually where, when I ended up going, really hard technical in my career when I was at Amazon, one of the projects was around instrumenting devices, IoT devices, and like, what analytics do we need to get back from these edge devices that have a very like low battery life, they have very small processors on them, very low memory, intermittent connection to the internet, what analytics do we need back from them? And can you make it work within this proprietary operating system? And like, that's the other end of like, suddenly now you're touching software engineering, and your skills as an analyst, you're pulling the thread all the way through, not just pulling data out of the database, but like, how does data get into the database? Like, what does it Mm -hmm. actually mean? What is it? Because data in, in a sense, or in my in my view, it's our pixelated view of reality like that's what data is meant to represent it's a pixelated view of reality and so can you make that pixelated picture a little more high fidelity and like do you understand the artifacts in that picture well enough to be able to analyze it properly yeah it's blurry but like yeah i i know where i'm going even though this picture is a little blurry so you're totally right and i went all the way i'm like all the way to the ground let's go all the way to the ground on this because it's just (laughs) you know the most fascinating part in my opinion it's time to step away from the show for a quick word about Piwik Pro. Tim, tell us about it. Well, Piwik Pro has really exploded in popularity and keeps adding new functionality. They sure have. They've got an easy-to-use interface, a full set of features with capabilities like custom reports, enhanced e-commerce tracking, and a customer data platform. We love running Piwik Pro's free plan on the podcast website, but they also have a paid plan that adds scale and some additional features. Yeah, head over to Piwik.pro and check them out for yourself. You can get started with their free plan. That's Piwik.pro. And now let's get back to the show. Can I just draw on something that you've brought up there? Like, it sounds like you did go very deep to the, I guess, like the technical side. 
I'm interested to understand like what caused it. It sounds like there's something there that interests you about problem solving, but I like, what is it that made you go really deep on the technical versus I find lots of people that transition into data from other disciplines. Like a lot of the time their strength is more in like the soft skills is like what makes them so phenomenal. And like, that's not to say they're good or bad at the technical stuff, but it's like, that's what drew them in is like, oh, there's actually this whole component about soft skills that's so important in this job. And that's, that's why I'm interested in it. But it sounds like you had a kind of different, different interests maybe. Yeah, I am formulating my answer because I have, again, a short answer to this and a long answer to this. And so I'm going to try and thread the needles on that one. Because one of the things I hear a lot about people that get drawn to analytics is they're like, I'm a truth teller. I want to know what's true. I want to know what's real. I want to know what's what the causal relationships are in this organization that I'm part of and how my actions or our company's actions are affecting, you know, our customers and things like that. Like that really draws a lot of people into analytics. And what I think a lot of folks find when they go deep enough on that thread, they pull that thread for long enough is that it's subjective all the way down to get to the instrumentation. I wondered if that's what you were and going so, with that. Yeah, I was like, yeah. ooh, this could, this could go in two directions. Uh, right. we, could, we, could, we could be in a, in a brawl here momentarily. Okay. Right. It's like you go – and as, as long as you have that drive in you and p- people who – I think end up going really technical, understand that if you really want to unwind that, like if that motivation Mm -hmm. keeps you going every single day, as it does for a lot of people, you're eventually going to be talking to the software development team. Like you're eventually Mm going to be there and you're eventually going to be automating these very complex things that you want to do. You're going to be getting into things like causal analytics. You're doing, you know, ML or you're doing, you know, more complex statistics or you're a Bayesian, which is not me. And you're like doing your whatever Bayesian, whatever, (laughs) you know, like you're doing that kind of stuff. And you realize suddenly that that's necessary to get closer to the truth you're looking for. And so, you know, for some people, to your point, it's like, that's less them. They're less about like, I want to understand what's true. And they're more about, I want to sort of translate for people. I want to help them, you know, connect their problems and their solutions more effectively. And so they're motivated by some of those other tasks that are, again, very valid and needed in the space. But that's my rough guess is it's those folks that are like, no, I need to know. I need to know, you know. So I know that you said that you got the first role in the marketing because someone took a chance on you. But I doubt that that's been the pattern all the way down, as you say. (laughs) So like, how did you make some of those transitions? Like how much of this is self-taught versus things that you were able to like ramp up on because of projects within the role? Like, I'm really curious, like how you got there. Yeah, I will put it in the following orders. One is I had a lot of help in these very particular what I'll call leverage points in making career changes. And then number two is like really flat out like hard work and learning things and demonstrating them. And then number three is focusing on outcomes. So the number one thing is my husband is an absolute master at writing resumes. So he spent like three years 
every weekend working with people on improving their resumes and helping them get jobs. And like there is a real pattern to how resumes can be written such that it's more likely that someone's going to read that resume like, yeah, you, you, you're you a great, you know, this is a, you'll be a great fit. And I didn't have those skills coming in. Like a resume was totally foreign to me. That resume for my first job that I got as a marketer, that's what I was saying. It was like, it was so bad. It was so bad. But like my next resume, because he and I were dating at that time, that he helped me prepare for going to my job at Expedia was much better. And like it's, there is this whole, like that, I, I can't understate that the ability to summarize your own abilities into the resume artifact is one of the highest leverage points that folks have you know some people like go to movies and dinner when they like court i mean this is i'm i'm just envisioning the like what should we do i don't know i think Work i've got some skills that need to be summarized <laughs> no but Kristen, i'm the same i believe resumes are like so undervalued and anytime a friend is like looking for a job or they um like, especially if someone wants a referral at my work or whatever, I'm like, one of the first things I do is like, let's sit down and have a glass of wine. And you tell me all the good things you've done in your last job. And I'll just take notes because if someone's telling you like over a wine or something, they tend to like be a little bit more relaxed than when you're like, yeah. write down your top 10 achievements, you know? But I actually, I think it's such yeah. an art form. And I love that. Um, I love that you see it as like such a leverage point. Oh, for sure. I didn't mean to derail you on that. Yeah, you had, you had multiple points, but could not swing at that one. Uh. That's right. Well, I mean, you know, funny enough, like, that he's my co-founder, too. I don't know if I mentioned that yet, but, like, storytellers, I'm CTO, he's CEO. So this is, like, you know, our basis for our relationships here. You're actually right on the money in that one. Um, and, and, you know, that's – so that's number one is, like, finding the people. One – finding people who know what are the leverage points in career change and that can actually like help you do it because you don't actually get any points for doing it all by yourself. Mm. Like it's harder and you don't get any extra credit for it. So like finding a way to find people that are experts that can help you identify these leverage points and then like listening to their feedback and doing what they suggest <laughs> is like this, like, uh, you know, something that I find is, is very undervalued in people. So that's one. Two is it is hard work. Like at the end of the day, you do actually need to have the skills for the job that you want to transition into. And, you know, for me, that was coming in as a marketer with an English degree. And I learned a lot of stuff about process and a lot of stuff about marketing. But then for this job, I needed to know SQL and I needed to know Excel. And so I like had to sit down and learn it. And this was before you know, there was like Coursera. So I was learning, I was literally reading like SQL docs on mm. W3 schools was like how I learned SQL was like really a grind, but like you got to do it. You got to like sit down and learn it and like commit. And then the third one, this is actually goes back sort of to the resume point, but you have to demonstrate that you can do those things. And a lot of times, like back in the day when I was doing it, there was certifications is one way that was the route that I took is I, I find I found some SQL and Excel certification that I could get. And I just got that certification just to demonstrate like someone out there says I meet the bar for being able to use these tools. But like nowadays, you might have a GitHub you know, repo, or you might have projects that you've worked on. You have a website where you can put up the work that you've done. So like just demonstrating, not only do I know like the leverage points in this career change, I've learned the skills that I need for the job I'm looking for, which by the way, read job descriptions is weirdly like the fastest way to understand what it, what is required in job. Read 10 job descriptions for the job that you want and like 
summarize the skills and then go get those skills and demonstrate that you have them. And like, that's the weirdly simple formula to like, you know, here's where I want to go. Check, check, checklists, go do it. And, you know, do that thing. Simple formula. <laughs> I feel like with demonstrating the skills, like, well, finding, finding something that like you care about. And this is, I've, I've done it. And then I've talked to other people about doing it. Like, Find something where you can demonstrate the skill with something that you care about. Because people are like, well, I don't, I can't get hired. I'm in a, I can't demonstrate it because I'm not hired. It's like, well, no, figure out what you're doing where you would like to apply it, make it a little more public. And then that kind of does two things. It shows that like you, you actually are demonstrating the skill, but it's also probably giving you a project that's a lot more interesting to talk about than, oh, I went on to Kaggle and I, you know, I guess what, guess what my model mm. on the Titanic survivability did. Yes. And people are like, oh, great. Um, yeah. You know, 100%. congratulations. Whereas opposed to I, like, I, I did this because I was really trying to figure out where we should move when I moved to a new neighborhood and wanted to do some sort of analysis to see if I could figure out where we should be looking for a house and yep. I had to learn Python along the way, you know? Yeah, that's so true. And it goes back to your question, I think Val about like, was it projects or is it, you know, how do you, how did you, is it just self-taught and like that project element, exactly what Tim just said of like threading the two things together. One is like a lot of, for me it, at the beginning, it was just independent projects I was doing outside of work. But once I was at Amazon or once I was at Expedia and Amazon, both actually, but especially at Amazon, like people don't say no to free work. So Mm. like, it's really (laughs) rare, especially free data work. Like everyone's Mm. looking, everyone's like short on someone who's going to do like their pet analysis. And so I, you know, you can take on the, one of the ways to get to demonstrate the skills that you have is to seek out responsibility and take on a responsibility that allows you to like demonstrate that. So that was what I did. It ended up being how I ended up with like a 14 person data science and like engineering statistician team was because there was all these people who had like, by the way, this is a whole tangent we can talk about. They had their one analyst, like their, their analyst on an island in like a few different teams. And they were all like, we can't figure out what this person should be doing and like helping us, like how mm. to help them help us with what we need. Can you manage them? So, and like help us figure this out. And that was how I got, became managing all these people. And also how I got this very broad purview of the organization. Cause there was like six different teams that all were like, we need you to help us help our analyst understand our business. And so then I had to understand all six of their businesses. <laughs> so it's like, it really, and now I have this broad range. Like I've done retail, I've done streaming, I've done, you know, like all these random businesses that you wouldn't, I wouldn't have gotten to touch because I just took on that responsibility. So I, being on the lookout for responsibility is like so, such a hack for, for getting new skills. On that though, I, I think the thing sometimes I struggle with is like, I'm going to wager a guess that if you asked any of the four of us about these like career shifts or moments where we've changed course, I'm, I'm guessing all four of us would say it also took a lot of personal time and effort of like being so interested and driven by it that we put our evenings and weekends and like it, it, is beyond just expecting that these big changes in your career are going to just happen only at work. Like, w- was that a similar experience for you? Am I am I guesstimating right? 
You're right. The actual, the first project, the the one that really I consider like an inflection point into like deep data science and like technical skill was I was working in, in like basically an SEM type channel. I was I was doing paid bidding for what's called vertical search within within travel. So it's sites like Kayak, like who's on top, the top rank for this particular hotel. And I had that bidding process was being run with Excel spreadsheets. And the marketer that was, you know, doing that, they left their role. And that team asked me to fill in because like, I have Excel skills, so I can do it, right? So they asked me to fill in while they were backfilling that role. And I was doing it, it was taking like, it would like 10 hours, 10 hours of just clicking in Excel. Because the sheet was so huge, it was like, refresh the pivot table, and then calculate fields, and then copy and paste, and like, and it was just, and then it would crash, and you just like, it was mind, and it was mind numbing mm. 10 hours. And I had talked to one of my mentors who now actually helps with our company, who is like, OG data scientist, been doing this forever. He's like, that sounds like it should be a Python script. And I was like, seems reasonable. Like I hadn't ever touched a lot. I hadn't written any code besides SQL at that point. I was like, sure. Sounds, sounds about right. So I mm-hmm. asked my boss like, Hey, can I like try turning this into a Python script? And he was like, no, I won't be able to understand it. So like, no, you can't turn it into a Python script. So on my weekends and nights, I was like, great, I won't do it during work hours. I'll do it the way they ask me to during work hours. But on weekends and nights, I just like turned this thing into a Python script and it ran in eight seconds. Eight <gasps> seconds. It was like, <laughs> oh, was that must so... have been so good. <laughs> yes, it's the best feeling. That is the one that I feel like gets people hooked. They have that moment of like, wow, like this lever is so big. And then of course I show my boss, I'm like, look, everything that you see in this Excel spreadsheet, I am producing every single field that you see in your Excel spreadsheet, but I'm doing it with code. You can review it the exact same way. And it runs in eight seconds. And he's like, okay, okay. And then actually, so one, that was my moment of like nights and weekends really was the lever, like what started the flywheel for me becoming technical. But also that change when I showed them that when you switch this thing from Excel to Python, that it saves. I mean, this there was, there was a team of like 15 people doing this. So you can imagine oh, wow. how many hours were being spent. So then you say, okay, we, we've now eliminated all those hours. And it changed the composition of their team, like what time they were spending and doing different things. They could now think about strategy way more than they were able to before because they weren't spending 10 hours on the Excel spreadsheet. So like that kind of thing, like the nights and we don't, I, I always encourage for people when you're following a passion, following a hunch, like do that without making it the norm, of course, like this should be an exceptional event. But sometimes those exceptional events are really the the inflection point. So can we, I want to use, so those those 15 people who at least three or four of them were perfectly happy with their mind numbing <laughs> clicking around. And then because of you, all of a sudden they now had capacity where they were expected to push themselves and, and think. So yeah, I'm sure those people are happy with, with you. But I mean, that, that actually triggered for me. We're talking as though there's a presumption that making that sort of leap is, is a good thing. I would even say it's, it's necessary. How do we, can you make the case that, you know what? I'm good with what I'm doing. There were, there were 15 people who it didn't, they didn't have the right incidental conversation with somebody who said a script might be good for that. It didn't occur to them. They were moving along. And I I know I've worked with people who are like, it's very, very frustrating because they're not 
intrinsically motivated to grow. And I feel like it's like the shark has to be moving or it dies. And it feels like, I mean, what do we think about, I feel like you can't stand still anywhere in the data analytics space today. Like you literally will be moving backwards, but I haven't figured out how to really make that case effectively. Clarifying question, Tim, when you're talking about that example, are you talking about data people who just want to keep doing what they're doing without like improving or wanting to problem solve? Or are you talking about like marketers, stakeholders, product managers, whatever it is? If you say both, I'm going to cry. No, no, no. More of the data and the analysts, I would say. I mean, I, I, and this is, I mean, my, my rant about data translators, I feel like, and I, I've got very, very clear pictures of specific people in my mind who have been in analytics and all of a sudden they've lived in whatever tool or two that's drag and drop and doing their reports and they want to keep pushing out their weekly reports, monthly reports. And I'm like, you, you gotta, you should explore these other things. And it's not just the, I think a lot, some of them will get dragged into the data collection technical side. If it's digital analytics, it's JavaScript or that. Sure. There's plenty of that. I think there's plenty of people who get pulled into that. That's very deterministic specific. I'm going to wire up the data. It's trying to get people to, recognize the efficiencies like the example Kirsten you just had like massive efficiencies to free up your time to not do mindless stuff but also start to try to grapple with these hard concepts and there are people who are like no 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 that scares me that's going to be hard work I just listened to this podcast that said it's going to be evenings and weekends I'm going to have to be internally motivated to do this why can't I just be a data translator? I just need to know Tim, enough. Tim, the people who to... listen to our podcast are not the people that are not going to do the extra work because they're already, like, we've already self-selected to a group oh, so that I are name, trying to expand their knowledge. I could name names. I could name names of the people because they're never going to listen to. Um, Probably. But I think, but I think, <laughs> I think our listeners, like, they've got to be running into those people too. Like, if, if. Because I think, Kirsten, if I heard you, I think I heard you tell that story another time. Well, even the way you just told it, like, in a, I mean, we might have glossed over it. Like, we should do this in Python. It's like, no, no, no. That's then a whole team has to learn Python. We shouldn't like you got told no first. So you had to say, screw that. You don't have my time, my personal time. I'll I'll show it to you. And that like, so making that case that like, hey, maybe it's time that we we all try to increase our skills or maybe, maybe I'm just imagining that's an issue. And I've had a few interactions with people who really infuriate with me with their lack of interest. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, to your point, actually there's, there's two, two thoughts that come to mind with that. The first is that to most point, the team I was subbing for was a marketing team and there was a very, you know, that's that team, you know, there's not a super strong push for those teams to be way more technical than they are. But when after we moved to a more Python based process, some of them did quit because they were very mm. happy with like their Excel driven world and weren't really interested in I mean, that that freed up time for things like A-B testing, which mm. for some marketers is just like, no, thanks. Like, that's just too far. You know, like, that's too much <laughs> statistics. That's too much math. 
Like, I'll just run my campaigns, you know, like, and that'll be fine. And so that for them, that was just too far. And so some of them did end up leaving because the role was no longer something they were interested in doing, which I think about that a lot. Like, it actually makes me feel like I need to do this responsibly, you know, where I wouldn't have thought of that when I was in that doing that at the time, you know, my first job at a corp in a corporate setting, like I didn't really think about like that that could be an outcome. But in terms of like the data side, one of the things that I think is really true is that shark analogy that you use where like, if you're not moving forward, you're kind of moving backwards. It's like, um, you know, putting your money in a savings account, like inflation just eats it, right? It's not like you can put it in a jar and it stays the same value. It's, it's degrading in value over time. So you actually have to invest in order to get that to even maintain the level of value that it has. And I think technical skills are the same way. One of my favorite examples, and I rant on this all the time, because you know, on Twitter, people love to do those little like, here's five tips that you need to know to improve your ML model performance or whatever. And they Mm -hmm. always are like, make sure you're filling your nulls which was totally true like 10 years ago. And it's just repeated and repeated and repeated. But if you're using tabular data, there is no reason to fill your nulls with a mean anymore. That's not the way you do it. You're not going to get the best performance if you do it that way. But it's just been repeated so many times that people still think that's true. And so that's like, that's one of my triggers. (laughs) Like You have not (laughs) updated your ML skills in the last like 10 years. So, and to your point, it's like that kind of stuff is all over in ML because it feels like magic. Like you're doing this incantation and you have to do things in like this certain order. And I've always done it this way. This is the way that I like do my magic spells and whatever. (laughs) So like, I, I just, you know, but like when you, turn it into a science, you see like, oh, yeah, I actually need to drop this practice of filling my nulls with the mean because gradient boosted trees do that automatically under the hood and they get a better performance when I do. And so that kind of thing, that's like one one example of what I see happen all over in data. Things like how do I manage my data in a cloud, you know, environment instead of this local like cluster that we were running under my desk. What's the difference, you know? And, and so like being able to up level the things. Why am I using Redshift instead of using X new tech instead of using Snowflake? Or why am I using, you know, those kinds of questions? You have to continually be understanding. Now there's one last point. I don't know. I'm monologuing. This is my thing. Oh, I just you're monologue. fine. <laughs> I was like, really? Tim is the king of monologuing. You're fine. <laughs> except mine. Except mine's not useful. So <laughs> here is the counterbalance to that point, though, which is data. What people call the modern data stack suffers from this fragmentation of technology, and it's very easy to get sucked into like learning the new tool that's like mm. VC backed and has a bunch of marketing dollars behind it, and like then you're just whittling away your time on like a hundred different things instead of focusing on like what are the skills that actually move the needle on the day-to-day it's Mm. probably not that new SaaS. you think about what are the core things that i need to know and what is evolving in those core areas that's going to help me do my job better what's making things simpler what's making things more scalable you know what's making things like faster and cheaper and without increasing the operational burden of adding a whole bunch of new tools into our stack. So it's this tension between keeping your skills relevant and like, you know, fending off the inflation kind of sort of phenomenon, but at the same time, not getting distracted by all of the things that are trying to pull Mm. your attention. God, I love that so much. Um, I feel like, yeah, I feel like I could talk to you about this topic forever. I do have a weird off script direction to go in which i am known for (sighs) you are incredibly smart and confident 
And I like, and yeah, very, very impressed. As someone who's had a similar, I guess, transition from like a non maths or stats background. And I, I also have talked to it like other people that are in a similar position. I know I've struggled a lot with, I don't know if you want to call it imposter syndrome or just like the, the lack of confidence when it does come to the technical stuff. And that's not to say I haven't done it. I've definitely done it, but there is, I feel like the, the doubt is maybe more significant than for people that do have a computer science or a maths or a stats background. Is that something? Cause like meeting you, it definitely doesn't seem like that's something you struggle with, but I, I know that that often <laughs> isn't like the truth. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I love talking about imposter syndrome so much because the advice that I tend to hear about imposter syndrome, and actually before I get there, I'm going to talk about the first thing, which is so real to not have a degree in the space, not be connected to the academic part of this discipline. It's so real that that's a headwind. Like, I think about all the things that I didn't know, I didn't know. Even now, Mm. sometimes I'll be like, even now I find myself, despite having spent a lot of time reading white papers on things like, you know, transformers and whatever AI technology, I still have this moment every once in a while when someone's like, new white paper dropped from so-and-so about da-da-da. And I'm like, oh, can't read that because I'm not an academic, right? Like, it still has, like, there's like a little bit of a rut in your brain that's like, white papers aren't for me because I'm an English major. There's no way I'd understand all that crazy math that's in there, right? Mm. So, like, it's like this rut that I can tell it's in my brain. But what I find so interesting about imposter syndrome is the advice that I hear most often has to do with trying to Im- increase people's confidence in their in themselves. And what worked for me, that didn't work for me. <laughs> <laughs> what worked for me was not taking myself so seriously. Mm. So like, instead of being like, no, I really am great. You know, like, I really can do all this stuff. And like, you know, trying to, it's actually like, Actually, it's not that big of a deal if you fail, you know? Like, you're not that big of a deal to where failure should not be something that you do, right? Like, you're a person, (laughs) you know? You're a normal person. And it's actually, like, even when you embarrass yourself... No one's going to remember like for and that sounds like almost like sad for a moment. And then it's also like freeing, right? Like, <laughs> like, I'm just not that big of a deal. <laughs> and like, so um, that to me was really the the key was like, oh, actually, I can go into this meeting with a bunch like when I was doing that instrumentation work, like these are software engineers, like very senior software engineers. I'm I'm, I'm putting documents together for like the VP or SVP of a device manufacturing company, right? Having never studied software engineering in my life and having to make decisions where that decision comes right back to me. Like Kirsten Mm. made that decision for how this is going to work for better or for worse, you know? And so like, but knowing even if I go in that meeting and I bomb, I'm just not that big of a deal. They're not even going to remember. So what's the, what's the alternative, right? I don't do it. And then the only one that suffers is me right? Mm. Like I'm the only one that suffers if I don't try because like if I try and I fail, no one else cares. And so like that, if you look at it that way, it's like, it's an obvious choice, right? Like it's an obvious choice that you like actually just take the swing and you keep taking the swings. And then suddenly you get to a place where people are like, wow, you know a whole bunch about whatever. And you're like, yeah, but you know, I'm still not that big a deal. 
you start to learn that you're like, I took a bunch of swings. I could have failed on 10 of them. I did it anyway. I did fail on two of them. Nobody cared. And I hit eight of them. Like, cause it does seem yeah. like we tell these stories. I did a Google trend search on the word catastrophizing mm-hmm. a few weeks ago. Cause I was, I just felt like I was hearing it more and it has like kind of, kind of mm. gone up and mm. I don't know because I feel like I'm like oh I've hit an age where I just I don't give a shit like I if I know something <laughs> or I don't as opposed to me who literally did google catastrophizing the other day because <laughs> somebody used it and no because I definitely do it and I was like oh. I want to under anyway that's so I'm part but of I mean, I think that's search trend data <laughs> yeah, <that's- laughs> you saw me that was it I searched it for Australia and sure enough it went <laughs> a much more recent spike uh, but I, I love that I mean, you're also doing good for the world by taking swings and fail. Like, not you don't want everybody like doing stuff. And it's like I don't know. It's that that distinction between if you're trying to do the right thing and you fail, you don't matter that much. And sometimes you won't fail, and other people can see that it's okay, so they can realize that it's okay. Yeah. To try things and fail, but yeah. Um, that's true. And like that is especially in a discipline like data where I, mean, I don't know how many times I've like had this like light bulb moment where like, oh, I could do something like this. And then someone's like, you know, that's bootstrapping, right? And I'm like, no, I had no idea. Like, I didn't know what I heard people talking about bootstrapping. I had no idea what it was, right? Like, okay. Can you literally in like 30 seconds explain to me what bootstrapping is? Because that is literally, I've even tried to Google <laughs> yeah. it and I get confused. Yeah. Maybe you're doing it too. Bootstrapping. <laughs> No, I'm pretty sure I'm not. Yeah, I. <laughs> we can cut this out. I'm just so, like, if you can actually explain, because it is a very difficult term for me to successfully Google. Honestly, all it is is like, imagine you have a data set and you want to fit a model to it. If you fit your model over the whole data set, you risk overfitting. Right. So instead, you take a subset of that data set multiple times and then average. And that's pulling oh. the subset is bootstrapping. That's what bootstrapping is. So it's. So it's kind of like cross-validation, like five-fold cross-validation-ish? Cross-validation uses subsampling as its technique. It's so weird. When I heard bootstrapping, I was just thinking of like funding startups. Oh, bootstrapping. That's what I jumped to. Well, that like. our company is bootstrapped too, oh. which just means we didn't raise VC funding for it. So it's which yeah. we've been profitable since our first day. That's a whole segue into like how data science is actually a very valuable skill that a lot of people are looking for. Like it's honestly comes down to this idea like data is really like being able to manipulate is very valuable. And we built a company that's bootstrapped because of that reality. So also Mm. bootstrapped. Just to round that out, there's a whole JavaScript, very popular library that is bootstrapped that also is completely unrelated, I think. And therefore my confusion, like you got to know the context. Um, Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's so funny. What so. can you explain the bootstrapping in JavaScript one? No, I just know it's JavaScript. I just know it's a library that people are like. Oh, I just bootstrap. My, my son could probably explain it to me, but no, I, I. Yeah, sorry. This was. I guess I just uh, I just put myself out there and revealed. Didn't worry about my imposter syndrome. I'm like, I hear that, See? and I don't know what it means. And everything's okay. So. And everything's okay. Yeah, Tim, like, you're not that big how. of a deal. Yeah. <laughs> Get over yourself, Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, and on that note, I hate to say that we are getting close to where we need to start to head to a wrap. So, Whoa. 
that, was, that came fast. That's a breath. Like you know what? I'm done. I, I'm humiliated. <laughs> I'm ashamed. We're ending this now. But we're also kind of getting to the time where um, we would. Val disagrees that we're at the time. No, 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 no. no. I would just love to ask a question that I've been sitting on because I didn't want to derail the the pet. But I'm going to sneak it in, Tim, if that's okay. Okay. Sneak, sneak. So, <laughs> yeah, we have, we have like like I was going to say, we have time for one more question <laughs> from Val. Got one? So I do. Yeah. So um, I also had like a very non traditional background getting into analytics, but I am not as technical as anyone on this call. And I find, mm. <laughs> but like, Val, you're literally one of the most technical people I know. Oh you're my hysterical. god, you're ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, so I find that the perspective that I gained through some of my early training—I was a psychology major before I switched into data—and I find that skill to be very helpful in the way that I approach my analysis and my work. And so I'm very interested, especially because you're working with—you're talking about super technical people, especially on some of these teams at at some of the places that you've worked here. So do you notice that your experience and your ability to write and tell a story and a narrative has really helped you a lot with the way that you've been able to deploy some of your super technical skills? Because you're kind of like balancing both worlds in, in a lot of ways. But I'm just curious how you feel like that's had an influence on some of your successes. Yeah, I mean resounding yes that my English skills have helped so much in my career as a technical person and like there's even a couple layers to it that like there's like some that are situational like I went to Amazon where it's document culture Mm -hmm. like for a meeting with your boss you're writing a six-page paper like every time you're meeting with your boss you're writing like you know pages and pages of narrative but even and, and so like in that sense but actually why I liked working at Amazon so much was part that was part of why because they really value being able to clearly explain your reasoning and like taking a stance and then arguing why that stance is correct. And that is what English literature majors do. Like that's what they teach you is like go into this actually unstructured data, which is a bunch of texts, you know, like books and poetry and all that. Go into this unstructured data, find a pattern explain why that pattern is significant culturally and, you know, defend yourself, defend that, you know, hypothesis that you have. And so that skill of constructing an argument and then defending it in using words is something that I, you know, think is is actually one of the skills I wish more data scientists like really paid attention to. Because that's like, you know, I don't know how many times I've seen that deer in the headlights look from someone when they like show you the analysis they did and you're like, so what's the, so what here? Why are we looking at this? What's the, what's the, what are you trying to convince us of by showing? And they just like, don't know, you know, like this was just what they asked me to pull. So like that look. And so that's where you really get down to like, okay, here's how you structure an argument. Um, Mm. By the way, side note, book called Pyramid Principle was really foundational to how I learned that skill of structuring structuring an argument. Pyramid Principle, and like that's what it does. It looks at logic, like from a philosophical standpoint. Here's the logical argumentation. Here's how you develop that. Here's how you write it in words that are clear. Don't worry about you know things like use parallelism. You know, make make things repetitive because people are going to actually understand it better, even though you feel like they're going to get bored. No, they're going to be interested because they understand, you know, like so those kinds of things, learning how to communicate those things. Yeah, 
100% something I use every day. I'm literally Googling that book right now to be like, oh my God, can I buy it for everybody in the team? And like, (laughs) (laughs) I did, you know, in fact, my husband, he also worked at Amazon for a while. And that was one of the things he did was he took his entire team through the pyramid principle. And he said like, we are going to study this book and then we're going to use what we learn in every single paper that we write for anyone that reads it. We're going to use all these principles for how to do structured argumentation. And it was transformative for a lot of people. Yeah. It's just a plug for 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 group book groups, team team book groups to <laughs> yes. force people to read. I mean, I've, yes. I've done that two or three times. Where like, if this really seems to matter, let's all be in this together and mm-hmm. hold each other accountable. So, yeah. Okay. Well, now, now we're gonna have to talk fast. No, we're fine. <laughs> well, that's been a great discussion, but we need to head to wrap. And before we close out, we like to do a thing we call the last call, where we go around and everybody shares something that is uh, interesting to them might be of interest to the audience and Kirsten you're our guest so do you have a last call to share yes and this is going to be like complete left field from anything we've been talking about except you know I guess maybe coming back to this idea of like working nights and weekends and like how that can be like kind of straining and how I don't recommend that be the norm but it's an exceptional case where you've really got this you know need and motivation but one of the things, you know, is like running a company and I have two little girls. And so one of the things that has become more important to me is like taking care of my health. And as a data person, I am so like annoyed with how little I feel like I'm missing the analytics for my body and my health, <laughs> right? Like I always feel like I'm not making data driven decisions with my health and which me is too. like drives me nuts. Yeah. And, it, and like, you can't find anyone who will help you either. Like, that's what it feels like. Honestly, I'm being hyperbolic, but like I cannot <laughs> find someone who will help me, you know? And so it's been this journey. Uh, my husband and I have been going on this journey of like really digging into the science and like the, the data, around health and there's like three things that I've learned that I think are kind of have changed my perspective on being able to manage my own health myself. Number one is that genetic testing is becoming much more accessible to folks and that your genes actually have like a reliable relationship to some of your experiences that I think it's becoming much more accessible to just like a consumer to be able to do. And we've, I've done a few genetic things. You probably, you know, heard 23andMe or done, you know, done 23andMe, but they don't test all your genome, especially a few, uh, a few parts of your genome that can be really impactful to health. And so um, there's a company called sequencing.com that will do whole genome sequencing. That wait list for how long it takes them to do it just keeps getting longer and longer and longer and longer. So I, everyone that I know that's even partially like interested in that, I'm like, hey, you should probably do it ASAP. So you can like, it's still going to take ours months to get back. You know, They're probably using but, um, Excel and they need a Python script. <laughs> yes. What are they doing? That needs to be automated. Um, I, I do think about that actually. <laughs> But like that's, you know, but as a data person, it's like, what better than like this massive data set about yourself that you can go like analyze and like learn about. And related to that is there's a part of your genome that's responsible for basically your your metabolism. It's called the methylation cycle, I've learned. And like the methylation cycle has to do with how your body like processes all of these inputs and turns them into the outputs of like energy and things like that. And getting your genome tested or, you know, getting your, your genes sequenced allows you to say, are there parts of my methylation cycle that aren't efficiently working? And so like I found mm. out that I have certain genetic markers for like I don't process certain kinds of B12. So that means, like, if I'm not supplementing with a specific kind of B12, then I'll probably be, like, 
have low energy. So it's like those kinds of very actionable things that like you can actually take and it's it's changed my health massively. And here's the last one. I know I'm again doing my monologue. Last one, but this is You're the good. biggest this is fascinating. biggest health. <laughs> <laughs> my my biggest health change in like the last year. My husband found something called exercise with oxygen therapy, EWAT, and it's basically like a pump that draws oxygen out of the air and then fills a reservoir with it. Imagine a big balloon. And you use this, you put on a face mask and it pumps in 94% oxygen into this face mask. And you do that while you do zone three cardio. So I do it while I'm on like an an assault bike, basically. And as long as you can stay in zone three for 15 minutes, okay, 15 minutes is all you need with this. It's like has all of these correlations with better health and better recovery and better uh, like oxygen oxidization of your body and things like that. And here's the kicker. I have exercise induced asthma, which means I haven't done cardio in like 15 years. None. Like the only thing I've done is push my kids in strollers. And I got on the exercise bike and did 15 minutes flat the first time using EWAT. So like from zero to 15 minutes in zone three cardio, like, and I didn't have any pain, like exercise induced asthma gives you just like burning Mm. pain and like zero pain. I was, I was floored. And that's one of the things we were like, why did all these doctors that knew I had this problem not know and or suggest (laughs) this intervention, right? Like you're just like, why? Who's, who's supposed to be responsible for knowing these things? It turns out it's us, you know, we're supposed (laughs) to be responsible for knowing these things. So anyway, those are the three things that have been really changing my life in the last, last year or so. Those are wild. Yeah. Yeah. Sauna also. I was going to say, I don't want to follow that up. (laughs) I don't want to follow that. (laughs) Any, meeny, miny, mo. What's your, uh, What's your last um, call? Yeah, mine's really lame. Um, so, well, actually, I shouldn't do Adam Grant a disservice because we all know I love him and I'm obsessed with him. And I, like, follow him on every platform imaginable. I also receive his email newsletter granted. And this particular latest one has really piqued my interest because – The title of the email is Stop Serving the Compliment Sandwich, which is something I have been known to do. And someone in particular on my team is always like, Mo, don't give me the compliment sandwich. Just give it to me straight. I'm fine. And so I no longer do it. But it's just made me kind of reflect on like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So he talks about like, when you give a compliment sandwich, you mean to give someone like a genuine compliment and then constructive criticism and then follow it up with a genuine compliment. But they like, that's not actually what they hear, right? Because like they know they're getting feedback. So they tend to hear like obligatory compliment, criticism of who I am, and then another obligatory compliment. And so like, they're probably not going to receive it in the way that you hoped they would. And I've been seeing Adam Grant, obviously, like I said, I see a lot of him in all of my feeds and he keeps (laughs) sharing this line that just is really like, I don't know. I, I keep hearing it and being like, Oh damn, that's good. Like, this is why I like you so much. It's I'm giving you these comments because I have very high expectations of you. And I know that you can reach them. And like, like you start that off as your feedback conversation. And anyway, I did test it out the other day. I'll report back as I keep testing it and let you know how I go. But I just love that like shift of like how we give feedback. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I, I love how, how, how engaged you've been in this episode. I really wish you'd stop referencing Adam Grant. <laughs> um, but, uh, Wait, what? 
Shit, I'm trying He's to do a compliment you a sandwich. Compliment and, like, sandwich. Oh, the shit fuck! Out of uh, oh man, I did not follow that. You looked so I, confused. I couldn't finish the top. Yeah, you looked so confused. Apparently, I don't need to stop doing the compliment sandwich because that felt really unnatural. So, oh, good God, Val, what's your last call? So, I every now and again listen to some of the TED Talks Daily podcast. And if you did your full-blown measurement plan of your New Year's resolutions and you're checking in and wondering, oh man, why am I not meeting my goals? I might recommend a listen uh, to this one. I listened to it right at the end of the year and it's called, this episode in particular is called The Science of Happiness with Lori Santos and How to Be a Better Human. And she is, first of all, super fun, super engaging, super interesting, and has constructed all these experiments to understand what actually causes happiness in humans and did things like set up a system amongst monkeys where they had like payment and had money and to see if money actually can drive happiness or do they make poor decisions with money based on risk like humans do. Um, so super interesting. I love the way she deconstructed how we think about self-care. And I also have taken on some of her recommendations for the things that she has diagnosed that truly drive happiness around connection and people. And so far, so good. So highly recommend that. She also has her own podcast, The Happiness Lab, which I haven't checked out yet, but she's I was going to say, awesome. I was like, I was thinking it was The Happiness Project. I'm like, I know, yeah, yeah. The Happiness I can't lab. believe I haven't yeah. come across her. I mean, but it was, she's a Yale professor and she's just super engaging and interesting. And it was a nice little concise, here are some things you might think about if you want to inject a little more happiness in your life. So that's my last call for today. So what about you, Tim? I'm just, I'm, I was like, Glory Santos, that's the happiness project, the happiness project. And that wasn't it. So I was, as I was Googling, it was, I was so close. It was the happiness lab. So my last call is, uh, just a straight up a read from, from, Past guest, always entertaining read, um, Katie Bauer, the Wrong But Useful Substack. Mm -hmm. And she always has just smart things to say. But she wrote a while back, she had a post called Beware the Sloth. So it's kind of like there's the hippo. And she was like, yeah, well, the sloth is somebody who's much more, they really, really want to use the data, but they're, they kind of get in the way in other ways. And, and she, she comes up with an acronym and kind of pokes fun at herself for, for trying to, to force it. But it just made me think about the having sometimes the people who come and say, ah, I'm really data driven. And then it somehow winds up being like really, really frustrating to work with them. And I was like, Oh, she, she kind of broke down different types of those people and made recommendations on how to work with them. So it was a good read. So, wow. These are some bangers. I'm a, I got some follow-up reading to do from this, but so thanks. And Kirsten, thanks again for coming on the show. This was every bit as fun and engaging and interesting as we were hoping it would be. Thank you. If people want to find you or connect with you, I know you're on Twitter at the, at, at mash It's like machine science, M-A-C-H-S-C-I. Yes. How do you pronounce that? I say mock Oh, uh, like mock, like mock five. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm going so oh, fast. Okay. Uh, yeah, but machine learning and science, M A C H S C I on Twitter slash X. And then, uh, you can also hear more about storytellers at storytellers.ai. 
and uh, would love to, you know, as you can tell, we talk a lot about how data science can impact these, like maybe far-flung parts of the of organization. So, always happy to have a conversation about that. Awesome. So, if you, dear listener, would like to reach out to Kirsten, if you'd like to reach out to the podcast, you can find us on LinkedIn, on the Measure Slack, on Twitter at at Analytics Hour. You can also, if you're in the U.S. or willing to travel to the U.S., those of us who are based in the U.S. are actually going to be at Marketing Analytics Summit in Phoenix on from June 4th to 7th. So marketinganalyticssummit.com. I think Val and I are both moderating tracks, yeah. and then we're also going to be recording an episode of the show while we're there, as we've done in the past. I'll also put a plug in, because we don't do it often enough, that if you want free stickers, you can go to our to bit.ly slash APH dash stickers, and you can get yourself some free stickers of the podcast if you want to slap one of those on your phone or your laptop. We'd also always love to get a ratings or reviews on whatever platform you listen to if it supports that sort of thing. And no show would be complete without thanking our illustrious producer, Josh Crowhurst, who makes all of the little hiccups we had throughout this. If you listen to the outtakes, you'll realize that that was stuff Josh had to pull out of the middle. So always fun for him. And uh, we appreciate Josh and the work that he does. So regardless of how technical you are or how technical you're going to be for Mo and for Val and for our guest, Kirsten, keep analyzing. Thanks for listening. Let's keep the conversation going with your comments, suggestions, and questions on Twitter at, at AnalyticsHour, on the web at AnalyticsHour.io, our LinkedIn group, and the Measure Chat Slack group. Music for the podcast by Josh Crowhurst. So smart guys wanted to fit in, so they made up a term called analytics. Analytics don't work. I love Venn diagrams. It's just something about those three circles and the analysis about where there is the intersection, right? Uh, <laughs> but we uh, need to head to wrap, and as we always do on this show, Kirsten just looked really excited about something. Uh, do you know why? <laughs> <laughs> and he was not wearing the red check pajama pants. <laughs> <laughs> Come on over. We'll we just want to check out your pants. <laughs> like, oh, the poor guy. See. The poor guy. I've been on a multiple calls where he just passes through. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry. I missed that. I was... Apparently, I was just blind. I completely missed. I've gotten to where I tuned it out. Okay. It's like the gorilla thing. Exactly. (laughs) I can't wait to tell him since I have my headphones in what a part of this episode he's been. (laughs) Um. Rock flag and pixelated view of reality.